Today, we're talking about building your confidence. Are you confident you'll be selected for the next promotion? Or are you a little unsure? Do you ever fixate on how you look? Worry that your clothes are too tight or too loose or you just don't look good enough? Today, we have Dr. Dorian Hunter as our guest and she's offering tactics to help silence the internal voices that tell you you aren't good enough so you can hold your head high. You've made it this far in your career. But is something holding you back from getting to the top? We're ditching the culture of competitiveness. We're women working together to help other women. We are Think Tank of Three. I'm Audrea, your business development coach. I'm Julie, your digital marketing strategist. And I'm Catherine, your media and public speaking expert. Three women from different backgrounds coming together to empower, support, and encourage other women professionally and personally. Let's do this together. Welcome to the Think Take of Three. It's Audrea, along with my trusted colleague, Julie, and we have a special guest today as our third, my close friend, Dr. Dorian Hunter. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. I'm a fan of the podcast, and so I'm super excited to be talking with you all about things that are near and dear to my heart. Thank you so much for joining us. We're excited to have you, and I'm really excited about these topics we're going to discuss today. So Dorian and I go way back to junior high, the awkward years. Although nowadays we're just as awkward, but you can find us out of school <laughs> and backpacking the Northwest together, or uh, we just started roller derby practice together as well. So it's pretty exciting. Dorian is a clinical psychologist who works with adults, couples, and older teens. She primarily sees people who are struggling with intense thoughts, emotions, and behaviors that feel out of their control and then related difficulties in relationships. Some important elements of Dorian's work are the creation of meaningful relationships with her clients that help fuel real change, both internal and external, and teaching skills that help support changes that people want to make in their lives. Dorian completed her undergrad degree at the University of Washington, her master's and doctoral training at Reuters University, and then came back home to me in Seattle and, uh, for her postdoctoral work at UW and the Evidence-Based Treatment Centers of Seattle. Wow, it's a mouthful. She's currently working with a group called the Seattle Clinic, providing care to clients and supervision to students who are learning to implement behavioral treatments. This is such an impressive resume, Dorian. Thank you so much for joining our podcast. When the Think Tank envisioned this podcast, our ultimate goal was to ask professional women in our communities to join us and share their wisdom. And lucky for us, Dorian, you are our first guest. Thank you. So if you couldn't tell, we're very excited to have you. <laughs> so today's topic is building confidence. Professional women often struggle with confidence in the workplace. I know I do. So we wanted to pick your brain on a few topics that are common confidence issues for women and get some tactics to overcome them. I'd like to talk about uh, things that interfere with confidence in the workplace. There are a lot of things that interfere uh, with our confidence, such as how women are often treated by colleagues that might reduce confidence. But there are also, and not unrelatedly, things we do, ways of thinking or behaving that interfere with our own confidence. I encourage people to focus on things they can change in their own thinking and behaviors, which may in turn influence how they're treated. Three things that can interfere with women's confidence in a professional setting are, one, the imposter syndrome two, over-apologizing unnecessarily, and three, our body image. 
You know, it's really interesting, Dorian, to hear you talk about things that we do that can interfere with our own confidence. So let's start by talking about imposter syndrome. So this topic um, is really interesting for me. It came up the first time I actually heard it by name was several years ago in a conversation with a close friend. And this happened to be a, a man who's a confident, larger than life kind of guy. He seems to have it all. He excels at everything he does, work, marriage, life. And we actually met through a nonprofit committee that we were co-chairing at the time. And it was one of several that he was on. So again, he just seemed to always have everything together. So when randomly he brought up imposter syndrome, I was surprised. One, because how could he feel like an imposter when it looked like he had it all? But two, because there was actually a name for this thing that I had been feeling quite often in my own life. So Dorian, can you tell us what exactly is imposter syndrome? Yeah, so imposter syndrome is when we are generally seen by others as being competent at something, say our work, but we believe we are not competent anyway. There are a lot of different kinds of approaches to this problem. It's something I've certainly felt at various times in my life, and it's something I often see in women who are professionally successful. So you're saying this is something where we might be really good at our jobs or really good at what we do, yet for some reason there's still that nagging voice that tells us someone's going to figure out you're a fraud or you don't really know what you're doing. Okay, but I think the silver lining is that you said you see this often and in successful women. So so if it's happening, maybe it means we're successful. So what are some of the best ways to cope with imposter syndrome? Like one of the most effective ways you're actually doing right now, talking to yourself in certain ways that are more maybe effective than the ways that you might talk about yourself on the inside. So that's one approach. One approach is to use a set of skills common in cognitive psychology or cognitive therapy. It's sometimes called check the facts or sometimes cognitive restructuring or evidence for or against. But basically in this approach, you lay out the facts that support that you are in fact competent and you rehearse those facts until you believe them. So you might say to yourself, what is leading me to believe that I'm not competent at my job? Do the actual facts support that I'm not good? What is the evidence that contradicts that I'm not good at my job? And then you rehearse the thoughts that go against the imposter thoughts. So the last piece, the rehearsal piece is important because for those of us with imposter syndrome, we're really good at rehearsing the thoughts that we are not competent. So we need to counteract these thoughts with other thoughts. An example of this is something that I've been doing with a group of women, close colleagues. So we're reviewing and sharing positive feedback that we receive each week. It's great. It has the element of rehearsing evidence against imposter syndrome and the element of sharing with each other and supporting one another, which is so important. It's related to what you guys talked about in the podcast about knowing your worth. If you know it and you're rehearsing those thoughts, you can own it and your behavior will be more in line with your values and goals. I just had this experience today. I have um, a pitch due at work and I was talking to someone who I had just done a pitch for and uh, he said, oh, you seem a little frazzled today. And I said, oh, I have a pitch in and you know, I'm not very good at those like in comparison to the rest of my work. And he said, well, the one you just did for me was great. I liked it a lot. And I thought, why do I think I'm not good at this? Like I just started from the place of like, this isn't my strongest space and therefore it's something to be worried about and concerned about, even though I've done a lot of pitches and I've, they've won. So yeah. like, I don't know where that. And why are you telling yourself that story? I think some of 
the reason that we tend to do it, especially more as women, is that we have been trained to do so. Like yeah. we are reinforced for being more deferential, which results in us being more deferential and less respected. Now, the problem with this cognitive approach is that there are times that this will backfire, particularly if you're trying to push away the bad thoughts. So the strategy doesn't really work very well. So you might ask why? Because of the pink elephant. What is the pink elephant? What does that mean? So let's do a little practice. Take a moment and whatever you do, don't think about a pink elephant. <laughs> don't let the thought of a pink elephant come into your mind. Audrey think of a pink elephant, it. push it away. <laughs> Stop yourself. Don't let yourself think about the pink elephant. Stop. So what happens? What did you guys notice? I mean, the only thing I can think about is exactly. I mean, every time you say it, yeah. Yeah. So the more you think about the pink elephant, or the more you try not to think about the pink elephant, the more you do, in fact, think about the pink elephant, and you struggle more, and suffering happens. So there's a set of strategies for this sort of problem that are called mindfulness-based strategies that can be helpful. The trick with these is to keep in mind that our brains generate thoughts the same way our hearts generate beats and our stomachs generate acid. But the difference is that we get all caught up in our thoughts and we treat them like they're facts or we identify with them. In mindfulness-based approaches, you notice thoughts but work to get some distance from them rather than being so attached to them. You don't think about them in terms of whether they're true, like with a capital T, but more ask whether they're helpful to your personal goals. There are some useful practices in this vein, such as singing your thoughts out loud in a ridiculous voice, saying them over and over again until they become meaningless, meditations where you practice picturing them as clouds drifting by or train cars going by. If you notice yourself jumping on the train during this sort of practice, that's the time to step back and just watch the thoughts go by. That is so interesting. I love how you said, and this is probably so basic, but here I am like back caught on what you said a few minutes ago, but that our brains generate thoughts the same way our hearts beat and our stomachs generate acid. Like that is like fundamental. That's how our brains work. So we're not going to stop thinking. We just exactly. have to redirect our thoughts. Interesting. Exactly. I love that. Yeah. So these two approaches are pretty different and they're totally compatible. And I teach them and practice them both. So the next topic I personally want to talk about the concept of apologizing or over-apologizing is one that gets me really fired up. I, I see this and I, I feel like I personally am constantly telling women, like, don't apologize for that. You don't have to say sorry for that. Lord knows Julie gets that from me, like, a lot. Oh, um, now. <laughs> no, you're totally right. And you, without thinking about it, I say I'm sorry all the time. I didn't mean to put you on the spot. I just meant you are one of the people I am the most curious about. Every other minute, every other podcast. So why do we do that? Why do we, why do women especially, I think, over apologize for behaviors that maybe aren't even theirs and for being in situations where they have no control over it? And how do we stop that behavior? Like I was saying before, we are taught and trained to be deferential. And so it's something that we, maybe there's some part of our biology that we do it naturally, but it's certainly shaped culturally. And I think I subtly did it with you the other day and you caught me and didn't let me get away with it. So I am, one of the reasons you're a great friend. <laughs> Thanks. I am, uh, it makes me angry. Admittedly, it's not a good, <laughs> it's my pink elephant. 
Let's talk about why we do it. It's so interesting that we do it, especially as women, we over apologize. Yeah. It's related to confidence for sure. And an important point to make here is that our brains and our bodies are part of a whole complex system, which includes thoughts, like we talked about before, as well as physiological experiences and sensations and overt behaviors. And each component of the system feeds back and influences other components of the system. So what we're talking about here is the experience and the expression of the emotions of either guilt or shame. Shame and guilt typically prompt repair behavior, like apologizing. So what happens when we apologize? We're essentially telling ourselves that we've done something wrong and that we need to repair, which could feed the emotion of shame. So being cautious about how you communicate with the world is important because you're also communicating with yourself and how you're feeding back into your own emotional system. So here's a question. I find, since Audrea picked on me, I'll go ahead and keep picking on me. I find that, and and this is probably going to come out totally wrong, but I find myself apologizing the most when someone else is wrong. And I find myself, like, so if someone else is late or if someone else missed a deadline or someone else, you know, did something, I find myself saying, I'm sorry, but you know, whatever. So, and it's, it's like that crutch that I lean on. So is that, is that like guilt of like that I'm right and they're wrong or like what, how does that play in? This is a great example because it illustrates, my sense is probably that you're a pretty empathic person and it illustrates how when as an empathic person, you see somebody else experiencing an emotion like guilt or shame, you have that same experience. So that emotional experience, those physiological sensations in your body are actually prompting repair behavior. Wow. So how do I turn that off? You By being that. aware of it. <laughs> By being aware of it. Okay. Um, and being mindful of the sensations in your body when they're happening, more in tune with yourself and acting opposite maybe to the urges that you're having. Tell me what you mean by acting opposite. Yes, I will. So one of the skills for this that I love is a skill called opposite action from a treatment called dialectical behavior therapy. It's when you notice, like we were talking about just a moment ago, all of those sensations in your body and any urges that go along with the sensations in your body. So urges for problem behavior of some kind that go along with the emotion and do the opposite of what the urges are prompting you to do. So you might notice that feeling of shame, see where it is in your body, be mindful of it, notice that it's prompting urges for either hiding or repairing, apologizing, assess whether it's justified or unjustified. So for example, in the situation where someone else has uh, done something wrong and you're apologizing, the emotion is unjustified. You don't owe an apology. So you would act opposite. You do the opposite of whatever the urge is telling you to do. So you don't avert eye contact. You look straight in the eyes. You don't slouch. You stand tall. You don't avoid the topic. You talk about it directly in a matter-of-fact way, and you don't apologize. I think we should practice this, Julie. I know. No, I'm feeling like we should, I should be paying her for this therapy right now. You did that on purpose, didn't you, Audrea? Like we're, I have this friend, Julie, and she really needs to help. <laughs> we're going to talk about her empathy. <laughs> I'm an empath too, so it's easy for me to identify. I spot the signs right away. Yeah. I just um, never say sorry for anything, so. 
I'm the opposite. <laughs> I think I do the hiding. Definitely not the sorry. So shame and guilt typically prompt repair behavior like apologizing. So what happens when we apologize? We're essentially telling ourselves that we've done something wrong and need to repair, which could feed the emotion of shame. So being cautious about how you communicate with the world is important because it's how you're communicating with yourself as well. And when you're feeding and how you're feeding back into your own emotional system. The other reason it's a problem is that it has social consequences. Like if you're talking to Audria, <laughs> you appear less confident to others and are likely to be treated with less respect and maybe get some anger, some flack. It's also annoying to people other than Audria. I don't find it annoying. I just feel like women apologize too frequently for things that aren't their thing. So this doesn't mean that we never apologize when it's needed or never repair when some sort of repair is called for and the emotion is justified, but we don't over-apologize. Like we don't apologize for breathing, taking up space, being alive. So I have a question. Say you're on a crowded bus or train. Someone like bumps into you. It's, it's very common. And I actually, I do do this. So Jules, you can throw it back at me. <laughs> if someone bumps into me, I say, sorry, like, Oh, excuse me. Sorry. Even though they bumped into me, is there a line between sort of like social graces and then being overly apologetic? I talk about this a lot with people too. Typically people who are not good apologizers are more likely to be worried about over apologizing. So it's sort of like, if you're an under-apologizer, you want to overcorrect. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're an over-apologizer, it might make sense to overcorrect in the other direction. Get it. And the, word I'm, the words I'm sorry are sort of like socially acceptable ways of saying, excuse me or pardon me. And for people who over-apologize and for whom that feeds that emotion of shame, saying, excuse me, might have less of an impact. Got it. That's interesting. So interesting. Okay. So a moment ago, you talked about acting opposite. And some of the things you were talking about were physical things that we should be doing, not slouching, looking someone straight in the eye, standing tall. And so I want to transition into talking about body image because sometimes it is just in the way we hold ourselves, but it's also in the thoughts that we have about ourselves and about our bodies. And so I think for a lot of women out there, this is going to resonate and hit home. So can you talk to us about how to reinforce having a positive body image. Sure. I love this topic too. And of course, it's such a problem, particularly among women. Again, we're talking about wanting to build confidence and having the emotion of shame getting in the way. So I would say everything we've talked about so far applies here. And there are some specific strategies as well that are specific to body image. People with poor body image often engage in certain problem behaviors, both internal and external, that keep them feeling bad. What are some of those behaviors? Can you give us examples? Sure. One example of these problem behaviors is overvaluing your body appearance with regard to how you look and how you see yourself. So this is tough because we as women are socialized from a very young age to see shape, weight, and body appearance as how we are evaluated. The world is judging us largely on our body appearance and we learn to do the same. But we can think this all the way through. 
of those people you know, how much of your opinion of them is really based on their body appearance? Like almost none. Almost none. Yeah, same for me. So for most of us, it's probably not the majority. Another problem is that over-evaluation of shape and weight can lead to this narrowing in your life. You focus on what you look like so much that you become obsessed with everything you eat, or you can't possibly wear a swimsuit or shorts in public. This impacts what you're able to do. Your life gets smaller. And Um, I think that's so interesting to pause there for a moment because I know so many women who are impacted by that, so many mothers who... And, and not so many mothers who will take photos of their kids and post all these photos on social media, for instance, and not have a single photo of them with their kids. And I have some good friends who will say, oh, no, I hate being in photos. But what about those memories? What about, you know, their, their kids are going to grow up and want photos of that vacation and have their mom in that photo. And the kids, certainly the kids of all people don't care what mom looks like in a bathing suit or whether mom, you know, has a, a towel on or not in that photo. So, you know, what do you, what can we do to really start to change that mindset so that we stop prejudging ourselves about our body image? Yeah. The first step here might be to make a pie chart of your identity. How much of your identity is tied up in your body appearance? How much is your career, your relationships, your activities? And does the pie chart line up with your true values? The next step from there is to build out the other areas of your life that don't involve body appearance at the core. For example, you might notice that 75%, which is not an uncommon number for women I see, 75% of how you view yourself is shape and weight. And that doesn't line up with what you truly value. You would want to think through what you truly value, maybe your relationships with your kids, significant family members, close friends, and deliberately focus more of your attention on building those. It could mean doing opposite action like we talked about before, wearing the bathing suit in public, making eye contact, looking proud, not looking ashamed, not doing behaviors that are consistent with shame to teach yourself that you're not likely to be rejected because of how you look. You know, it's so interesting that you say that. I, someone once said to me that, you know, when you walk into a room and you immediately assume that people are going to be judging you, the dress you're wearing, how you look in the dress, when really every other woman in the room is worried about what every other woman in the room is judging. And so we spend so much time worrying that other people are judging us when really the other people are worried we're judging them. Yeah. And very little of our mental energy is spent on, for most people, not for everyone, but very little of our mental energy is spent on evaluating the way other people look and treating them differently because of having a different kind of body. Okay. So what about people who are overchecking or overweighing, you know, doing it too often, people who maybe weigh themselves every day, or I've heard, and this is obviously something you would know more about, but people who maybe go from one extreme to the other, who are just so into fitness that they're working out maybe excessively, you know, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. So another common problem is exactly what you said. People checking their body too much. Um, So weighing themselves really frequently, looking in the mirror really frequently, pinching their bodies really frequently, or on the other hand, extreme avoidance. So refusing to look in a full length mirror, getting changed in the dark, never weighing themselves or weighing themselves very rarely, looking away from the scale when they go to the doctor's office and asking not to know the number. It keeps you 
Overchecking is a problem because it keeps you overly focused on your body and your body's appearance to the exclusion of the valued activities that we talked about earlier. And then avoidance is problematic in part because it stems from and feeds back to that belief that your body is something to be scared of or disgusted by, and you're feeding back into that emotional system again. So both of these kinds of behaviors keep you stuck in the belief that your body is bad. What do you do for people who sort of sit in the middle ground where you definitely are not comfortable just throwing on whatever and walking out into the world, but you don't necessarily fall under fall under this overweight or over checker. I feel like I'm kind of in the middle. Mm-hmm. I um on my like personal time when I'm getting dressed, it doesn't matter. But I find that when I get dressed for work is when I get hypercritical because I want to make sure my pants aren't too tight. Like if my coworkers see that I have a panty line, like that sends me in a tizzy, which is ridiculous. I wear underwear. I don't actually care if people know that. <laughs> so like, what do you do for that middle ground where it's like there's places where you're comfortable and you don't think about your body, but then there's other places where you sort of are really cognizant of it? Yeah, it's interesting about work because it is an area where we're trying to present ourselves in a certain light. So there may be some like adaptive benefit to trying to present yourself in a certain way. However, if you are doing some of the overchecking just in that context, it could be that that is feeding into feeling more anxiety or more shame about how you look. And with a client, I might do some sort of experiment, like what happens when you go to work with a really visible panty line? like the, the biggest panty line you can make happen. I can't even. Know. What happens? <laughs> I, I mean, I. Are you treated any differently? <laughs> so we might work our way up to that. We might start with very subtle panty lines and work up to maybe more extreme panty lines. Um, <laughs> but you learn over time that you're unlikely to be treated differently. Like the worst case, what your mind is fearing is not likely. That was a lot of wonderful tips. And you guys have learned something about my panty line. <laughs> uh, As we are wrapping this up, we have three lightning questions that we are going to ask because we do everything in threes. We are collecting advice from successful women in our communities and sharing it out with successful women in our communities. And since you are an awesome friend and part of our community, here we go. You ready? Yes. Is there a lesson that you've recently learned that you wish you would have learned earlier in your career? Early in my graduate training, I had an advisor caution me to curb my enthusiasm which caught me off guard because it seemed like the opposite of something I should be doing. I was thinking I'm young and I should be taking the bull by the horns all the time. But what she meant was that I tend to get really excited about lots of different things and invest a lot in them, which has the potential for leading to burnout. And over time, I have seen real wisdom in her advice um, and have changed my overcommitting behavior. It's something that I still need to keep an eye on and remind myself of frequently. Uh, both in my personal and professional lives, but I'm so much better at it than I used to be. What would you today tell you 10 years ago? What advice would you offer? 10 years ago, I was defending my master's thesis. I was so nervous to be presenting and defending my own original research uh, for really the first time. It was based on women with alcohol use problems and their social networks. I think I would tell myself to relax, to own it, enjoy it more, recognize uh, the importance of my work. Really, I would talk with myself about opposite action to shame and knowing my worth. And then what do you think the most important skill to hone for a woman is in today's professional setting? 
I have seen a lot of professional women, some of whom are struggling with balancing work responsibilities with advancement and having rich and fulfilling personal lives. I encourage these women often to think through and identify their values and ask whether what they're currently doing lines up with what is most important to them. I think really understanding what you value and having goals that align with those values is key. Something else I talk with women about a lot is their social networks and how they're interacting with them. Close relationships tend to be more important to women and having other people in their lives that support their values and their goals related to their values is often critical to well-being and living according to our values. It's part of why I love this podcast and what you guys are all doing so much. Thank you so much, Dorian, for joining us and offering us tactics to build confidence. Thank you also for being part of our community and uh, being an amazing woman and friend. All right. We're going to wrap it up. Join us as we continue this conversation online, thinktankof3.com. We blog weekly, so subscribe and you'll get an email when the new blog comes out and find us on social media. If you have questions or topics to discuss, send us a message at thinktankof3 at gmail.com. You've made it this far in your career, but is something holding you back from getting to the top? We're ditching the culture of competitiveness. We're women working together to help other women. We are Think Tank of Three. I'm Audrea, your business development coach. I'm Julie, your digital marketing strategist. And I'm Catherine, your media and public speaking expert. Three women from different backgrounds coming together to empower, support, and encourage other women professionally and personally. Let's do this together.